Hello, fellow lovers of all things green. I'm Mary Stone, and welcome to Garden Dilemmas, Delights, and Discoveries. It's not only about gardens, it's about nature's inspirations, about grasping the glories of the world around us, gathering what we learn from Mother Nature, and carrying these lessons into our garden of life. So let's jump in in the spirit of learning from each other. We have lots to talk about. Hello, it's Mary Stone, and Ellie and I just landed on the screen porch. We haven't been here for a while. It's been rather chilly, although we had a couple of warm days where I rallied in the garden and did some dividing of perennials, making more plants, which is always very joyful to do, and hard work. I had a heck of a time wrestling the Siberian iris to divide them, which was a task that was long overdue. I actually wrote a column about dividing iris that you can look for on GardenDilemmas.com. Anyway, Ellie is by my side. You probably hear me petting her. She's been uh, a little bit, boy, I shouldn't say a little bit. It's been a rough time since our last chat. I mentioned that I couldn't road walk her and uh, Kurt as well, but Kurt's fully recovered from his setback. I'm afraid Ellie's setback is is more permanent. Um, As it turns out, she had some uh, episodes of choking going on as well as uh, shallow breathing and panting and so we had her at the vet it was very odd we had to actually pass her to the vet tech in the parking lot with masks on i hope you are coping okay with all those protocols here in new jersey of course is a hot spot but i guess and i hope and i pray that things are improving and soon life will return to the new normal whatever that will be Anyway, as it turns out, the veterinarian gave us the diagnosis, very kindly so, from the examining room. And uh, as it turns out, Ellie does have doggy dementia, which is, uh, there's a, of course, medical term for it, canine cognitive dysfunction. And so here a journey begins, one that is very familiar to me, having gone through the journey of dementia with my dear old mom. And so, so many of the symptoms are familiar, not to... uh, lessen those that are going through it with their loved ones. But Ellie's my loved one. She's my furry kid. And the other complication is there's a issue with her larynx. Apparently, as a dog gets old, it can cause uh, laryngeal paralysis, which um, is what's most difficult to imagine going forward. But anyway, I don't want to make this a sad podcast. I just want to share my story and uh, let you know that uh, I will continue these road walks. Ellie will join me when she can, and we're just going to follow her rhythm. They will be much shorter, though, for sure, and I will cherish every moment of them. So let's get started. I have my cup of coffee. I hope you have yours, and if you're driving, please continue driving carefully and uh, maybe swing through a drive through and support those kind folks that are helping making this difficult time a little more joyful. Maybe treat somebody behind you and grab a cup of coffee for the person serving you because Lord knows they are working hard to give us some joy. So give it back to them. Let's get started. So one of the other magnificent miracles of spring, in addition to making more plants and dividing plants to share with others, is of course all the new beginnings of new life going on. And uh, I have to report a robin is nesting once again in the viburnum outside of my kitchen window, my bay window. And uh, I had two nestings, I guess it's called broods, last spring. And uh, I 
wrote about it. I'm going to share a column about it. Um, actually, it's a little more comprehensive than just about the robin. But uh, anyway, it's exciting to think that perhaps it's the same robin that's come back. And it's certainly exciting to anticipate some new baby robins being born. So the column starts like this. Hello, fellow readers. There's lots of spring building going on. We've had a robin flittering from here to there outside the kitchen window, making a nest in the viburnum. What a joy it will be to watch the miracle. We sure don't feel the same way about other critters making nests, though, like the carpenter bees we spoke about last week, if they take up residence on your deck rails or siding. By the way, that column is also available on GardenDilemmas.com. Title, Carpenter Bees, Friends or Foe? I've always wondered why there are tips of branches with baby leaves scattered about in the spring. We came upon clusters of emerging oak leaves at Camp Mohican in Blairstown, New Jersey on Easter afternoon. Then dozens of tiny mops of maple leaves along the road during a walk with Miss Ellie. Just yesterday there were bunches of baby beech leaves on the footbridge crossing our pond. I Google searched and proved that the culprit are squirrels likely building nests as evidenced by the sharp cuts on the stems. If squirrels drop a cluster of leaves, rather than retrieve it, they chomp another branch tip to use for their nest. Talk about being wasteful. <laughs> I also read that squirrels are fond of feeding on the buds themselves in late winter and early spring. Perhaps their littering of tree tips is in defiance that their spring bud feast has ended. I'm just kidding. I doubt they are that ungracious. Come fall, the nibble branches loaded with nuts for easy pickings from the ground. Can't blame a squirrel for that, right? You know, gee whiz. Some say squirrels chew branch tips to keep their teeth sharp or because they're bored, which makes me smile. Run around the house or run the vacuum. Wasn't dear old mom's fix it when we'd complain about boredom. I never took her up on the suggestion, though. How to remedy the litter of baby leaves? I stumbled upon an article about squirrel deterrents that mirror deer deterrents such as hot pepper spray, mothballs, blood meal, and predator urine, all of which seems a bit of a long shot. But hey, if you're bored, maybe give it a try. Or just accept squirrels' antics as nature's way of pruning. Unlike deer, they won't devastate a tree. Now this is kind of funny. I have to smile at this story that I'm going to tell you about that was written about in this column titled litter of tree tips. So I was visiting my clients in Piscataway. Kathy pointed out a new squirrel feeder, which looked like a large peanut butter jar poised on its side, filled with sunflower seeds. It was suspended by a deck of sorts made of cedar. The theory is if you feed the squirrels, it will prevent them from hoarding food from the bird feeders, Kathy said, then confessed it wasn't working. In fact, they now have more squirrels eating from the bird feeders. Maybe they are ungracious after all. Garden Dilemmas? AskMaryStone.com So it's around Mother's Day here in the United States, although it's a holiday celebrated different times of year, depending on where you're from. And I heard from a friend of mine recently named Barbara that her mom had passed away in a nursing home and how sad she was that it was close to Mother's Day. I assured her that even though her mom is on the other side, as my mom is, they're forever by our sides and in our hearts. My chat with Barbara brought a curiosity about the history of Mother's Day, and it's a fascinating story that parallels the events of today, so I thought I would share it. 
Anna Marie Jarvis originated the holiday inspired by the contributions of her mother, who had a similar name. Anne Maria Reeves Jarvis was a pioneer in spreading unconditional love during a grim time in our history. She had married a Baptist minister and had 11 or 13 children. Only four survived to adulthood. The others died of various diseases common then, including typhoid fever, which became an epidemic. And so, turning childhood diseases around became Jarvis's life's work. She began a Mother's Day work club, and members visited families to teach them how to improve hygiene in their households. Anna recalled a prayer her mother gave as part of a Sunday school lesson, wishing there would be a day to honor mothers. And so, on May 10, 1908, about a year after her mother's passing, the first Mother's Day took place at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. Then began her mission to make Mother's Day a national holiday, It came to be thanks to President Woodrow Wilson in 1914. A remarkable part of the story is how her mother's contributions impacted our country during a time of severe divisiveness. It was during the Civil War, from 1861 to 1865, and West Virginia was the line in the sand between the North and the South, both in proximity, but more in the fiercely divided attitudes of the people then. Measles and typhoid fever broke out in military camps, and Jarvis and her club members nursed them back to health, regardless of which side they served. After the war, officials were trying to overturn the post-war contentions and called upon Jarvis for help. She organized the Mother's Friendship Day to bring soldiers and their families from both sides together. There were threats of violence, but only love erupted as Anne shared a message of reconciliation and unity bringing the audience to tears. Perhaps a turning point as the audience awoke to the truth that hate, divisiveness, and destruction must end. May we learn the same lesson this time, too. I thought I would share another quick column that I wrote back, my goodness, back in May of 2014, because the Mother's Day season often inspires the shopping for annuals, largely in this area because we're getting close to the end of the risk of frost, although, (laughs) ironically, in the forecast overnight tonight is snow flurries. I'm not kidding you. Mother Nature can play some tricks. Anyway, let me share that column now. Mother's Day triggers shopping for annuals as gifts and for continuous color in our gardens and pots. I'll have to admit, I often end up shopping despite the rush. There's something fun about being in the frenzy of it all. The hurry to grab a plant cart, drooling over the colors, and the tendency to load up without a strategy and becoming dizzy in all the confusion. It really is a lot of fun. Before you go to shop, go through the usual considerations. Inventory your intentions of where they'll go site conditions, planting space, and the issues of deer and other critters. And if you're buying for potted gardens, obviously the cultural considerations for plant choices sharing a pot must be the same. In other words, if you're using them on a sunny porch, obviously choose sun-loving plants. If you're going to have your potted garden, you know, underneath a gazebo, then you need to consider shady plants, plants that love shade. Nurseries don't always arrange their inventory that way, so read labels for sun versus shade. Beware of the risks and perils of shopping for annuals, such as choosing on appearances alone. You know better than that, didn't your mother teach you? Bringing home the uninvited, pests that is, so inspect your little plant selections, make sure there's nothing creepy crawling going on. 
and selecting those that may be too mature. We all have a tendency to pick something in full bloom, but rather than going for a plant in full bloom, choose ones that are yet to bloom or only have a few flower buds. That way the plant can put energy into developing a strong root system to produce all-season color rather than a rush of bloom followed by a quick decline. In fact, removing flower buds is a technique to encourage root development. See that? We all need good, strong roots to survive our long life. Speaking of roots, look for the fully developed roots without being root-bound. How can you tell without slipping them out of the pot, asked Cheryl of Johnsonburg, New Jersey. It's all in the feel of the pot, kind of like choosing a cantaloupe. Feel its weight in relation to the size and a gentle squeeze, not a hard one, by the way. Same is true with cantaloupes. Don't make them bruise. <laughs> a gentle squeeze to feel if the roots are too tight in the pot. Look for the plants that are full-figured rather than tall and leggy. Yeah, baby. And stay clear of spotted, discolored, or holy foliage, which may be evidence of disease or insects. Yes, leave your pests at the nursery and don't take them home with you, those uninvited guests. And by the way, did you know that many trash services do not accept nursery pots for recycling? And that's because the type of plastic used is usually a polypropylene, so they could end up in the landfill. So when you buy your plants, ask if the nursery has a recycling program for their pots, because some of them do. Or consider buying plants in biodegradable pots, such as those made of peat moss, coconut husks, or composted cow manure. So anyway, enjoy your Mother's Day. Enjoy buying color. Enjoy celebrating dear Mother Earth. Thanks so much for coming by. Have a great day. You can follow Garden Dilemmas on Facebook or online at GardenDilemmas.com and on Instagram at hashtag Mary Elaine Stone. Garden Dilemmas, Delights, and Discoveries is produced by Alex Bartling. Thanks for coming by. I look forward to chatting again from my screen porch. And always remember to embrace the unexpected in this garden of life. Have a great day. Thank you.